Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll just say a little bit about what I've been doing this week in terms of harvesting the good of the land and what's in season. So here in Kent in England, we have a lot of rose hips on the bushes at the moment. And it's not even just that I want to tell you what I've been harvesting, but more the kind of approach that I'm um, seeking to take just to embrace the rhythm of the seasons a bit more and just work with what's there. So I'll just tell you the story of um, harvesting and processing some rose hips. So I was on a journey back from a nearby town, Canterbury, to the village where I live, and there's a lot of rose hips in the hedge in part of that journey. And so the first thing is I chose to respond to what was there at that point. Uh, probably needed to get straight back, but I thought, well, I'm going to just – take what's there because you know I'm passing through this particular area now and I'm not sure when I will next time and and when I could schedule in coming here especially and it would seem better to to um, rather than coming here especially just to to stop and respond to what's here now so that's what I did I pulled over and um, picked a nice bag of of rose hips well following that we were due to go and visit a friend um, who is about a half hour drive away so I thought well since Ali, my wife, was driving and I'm in the passenger seat, I decided to take a knife with me and begin to process these rose hips. So that's what I did. And um, and I've taken a new approach to, to working with them. So a lot of people make rose hip syrup out of rose hips, which is, yeah, it's a nice thing to, to have. But they are um, a fruit in their own right. And I'm keen to, A, explore different ways of using them and, and in particular to use them whole so that you can recognize these as pieces of fruit rather than it just being dissolved into a syrup. So the approach I took is to cut them in half, and there's there's a, a secondary byproduct which I'm after in that, which is the seeds inside the rose hip, because they can make a uh, they can be used to extract an oil, which is um, well I know it's used for skincare products. I've actually yet to really do my research on rose hip oil, but we have um, an extension to our juice extractor which enables us to extract oil. So I'm going to um, just get as Bigger stock as I can this season of um, rose hip seeds in order to do that. So there we are. I've cut the rose hips in half. And just the fact of doing that, sitting in a car without the aid of a chopping board, meant that I, I developed a particular method, which was to make a little slit down one side. And then I found fairly quickly discovered that I could then cut from the base down to the tip, just cut it in half. And it, it, it sort of split. It's like putting an axe into a piece of wood. Once I got the knife a little way in, it sort of split the rose hip in half. Um, and so that kind of method sort of revealed itself as a result of doing it um, that way. And, and that's that's kind of fun because had I been using a chopping board, I would have been just cutting hard down onto the onto the rose hips, um, and, and I wouldn't have had this sort of encounter with the structure of the rose hip splitting. So you know, whether in the long run I'd use that method or not, it, it's kind of fun to to see that just a slightly different circumstance reveals the properties of the thing that you're you're working with. But here's the other point I wanted to make is just that that was then me able to process the rose hips in, in this very kind of social setting. So rather than, okay, I'm off to do some work and there am I just doing my rose hips, I was chatting to the family and enjoying the, the scenery and so on. And um, that's a thing to say that really one of, one of, the, one of the joys of harvesting stuff, um, actually Adam, who I'll be speaking to shortly, alludes to this dilemma of harvesting stuff and then needing to to work through the processing thing. But I'm I'm actually trying to get around that and and start encountering some of the joy of it. 
specifically relating to the fact that processing things used to be a very, very social activity um, in the past. People would, would gather their their plant gatherings and then they all sit down together and maybe spend hours or days sitting down processing things. Some things would be partly processed and then fully processed in the winter when, when there wasn't any gathering to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at how the processing can cease to be something that seems like an onerous task and actually be also part of the celebration and joy of the seasons. Um, so first of all, participating with the landscape by gathering this stuff, but secondly, participating um, in a gathering of people. Uh, although I hasten to add, I've yet to rope my kids into pressing these rose hips, but uh, I thought I'd start by just doing it around them and see see how we got on. Um, they have, by the way, been involved in the other big harvest that's happened recently, which is the nettle seed harvest. So that's quite fun, um, or at least my little boy has. And I'm now at the second stage of harvesting nettle seeds, which is that I'm kind of rubbing them all, all off the branches and, and going to maybe try and get that down a bit finer. Nettle seeds being a wonderful thing that you can just keep as a, as a sort of seed sprinkle and use it all the year round. Um, as well as the other thing I've been harvesting this week, we have an awful lot of greater plantain near where I'm living. I mean, it's cropping up everywhere at the moment, but um, the seeds are um, abundant. And I did a big harvest on Sunday, just went and sat down on the ground and, and harvested. And um, and those are currently in our drying space down at the, the forager unit. And I'm taking advice from the advice that Mark Lewis gave me when, when he was on the podcast a few weeks ago, although he, we're, we're struggling to get the serial number for, for the little grinding mill that he recommended. Um, which I'm going to use to get the husks off. So that's a big harvest at the moment. Just, just, just like to um, just give a window in on um, both my time frame, but also my process. You know that I'm really um, seeking to just catch more of the seasonal harvest. Oh, the other thing is there was a Cornelian cherry tree, which uh, Wildman Steve Brill mentioned that fruit in the podcast a few weeks ago. There's just one in the village. It's not wild. It's planted in the uh, the premises of a, a local school, but they all drop on the pavement. So I've went and sort of done a rescue operation to, to get the ones from the pavement and given them a good old wash and um, then boiled them down and, and I've pressed them through a sieve to make a paste. And that's just sitting there waiting for the um, me to start the hawthorn harvest, which I'm going to combine hawthorn berries, um, also pressed through a sieve, with various different fruits and other flavors to make fruit leathers that will last the whole year. And the idea being to introduce some really wonderful uh, sort of tonic things in there, like like the meadow sweet that I mentioned in this week's podcast, maybe some fungus things. So this is actually me working to solve the problem that I allude to in my conversation with, with Adam. Speaking of which, we'll get on with that now. It's a great pleasure to welcome Adam Harriton to the podcast. Hi, Adam. You're welcome. Thanks, Miles. It's great to be here. So Adam's a guy who's based in uh, Pennsylvania in the United States, and um, he does wild food teaching and public speaking, and he, and he also makes a few products. I've been actually looking at your website and seeing the lovely uh, tinctures that you're making for the medicinal mushrooms there, Adam. But I always think it's better for people to um, really introduce themselves and maybe um, tell a little bit of your story, you know, how, you, how you came to be doing what you do there in Pennsylvania. Yeah, sounds great. So first, thanks for having me on here. Appreciate it. So I run an organization called Learn Your Land, and there's a website with the same name and a YouTube channel. And I actually started it maybe five or six years ago as a way to scratch my own itch. I wanted to basically find out where other naturalists were located in my state, in Pennsylvania, and figure out when they were leading events and what kind of events they were leading. It's very difficult for me to find this kind of information. 
we have a great state where we live, a lot of land, a lot of wild spaces, and a lot of people who teach about plants and mushrooms and trees and mosses and ferns and birds and all different kinds of things related to nature. But the issue I was running into quite often was I couldn't find any cohesive database to figure out when their events were taking place. And I thought, I'll create something like that. I'll try to create some central hub so that the naturalists can get together and just post their events. And then people interested in attending these events or connecting with these naturalists can go to the central place. And so I called it Learn Your Land because that's what I was deeply interested in at the time. And five years later, I'm still deeply interested in learning my land. So I just reached out to a bunch of naturalists and I quickly built it up. Um, I'm not quite sure how many people are on there today. And it's kind of a self-maintaining entity. However, in the meantime, I've kind of taken it in a different direction and started using that as a platform to educate through my own personal videos. Because I thought a lot of people were coming to the website actually to hear what I had to say, even though I was interviewing other naturalists and trying to get their story and having them teach about plants and mushrooms and trees and what was going on with them and their organizations. So a lot of people were interested in what I had to say, and I took note of that specifically by filming a lot of YouTube videos and just going out with my camera, just a hand-me-down camera, and surprisingly, it's the same camera that I use today, so nothing fancy, and just finding plants and getting in front of the camera and talking about it. And I realized that more people were coming to this website for that more so than to learn about these events that were taking place in my state. I did not abandon that entity altogether. I still have that Learn Your Land Naturalist database, but I felt like my energy was more well spent and invested in doing these videos. And so over the past couple of years, that's what I've really focused on. It's not about me. It's not about what I have to say. It's all about the mushrooms. It's all about the plants. It's all about the trees. But I think a lot of people like to connect to a human face and see somebody behind the camera, which is why I do put my face out there when I'm filming these videos. But it's been great over the years. I've gotten a lot of support. I've been able to maintain this business. I'm not sure how far it'll take me or in what direction it'll take me. But I'm really focused more so on the education side of things rather than selling physical products, even though I have dabbled in that in the past. And I think it's important to note for people who are interested in learning about nature that I was not raised this way. I was not raised a wild child. I was not raised knowing about plants or mushrooms and trees. I got here in a roundabout way, uh, mainly through health and nutrition. I was interested in tweaking my diet maybe about 10 years ago because I wasn't feeling too good about the foods that I was eating. And that's how I discovered wild foods because I realized that these were some of the most nutritious foods on the planet. And I had a difficult time accessing them in the grocery store or online. And so I figured I better go outside into these wild spaces and find them myself. That's what led me to where I am today. Yeah, where did you, what put you onto that? You know, where did, where did you first start to uh, get that kind of information that pointed you to wild foods as a excellent source of nutrition and so on. I just made up my mind 10 to 12 years ago that I would do whatever it takes to feel good <laughs> at that time. I mean, I was maybe 20 years old at the time and I thought, I felt like my body was breaking down at such a young age. It was nothing dramatic. It was nothing like I had to be hospitalized at the moment. But I realized if I didn't take care of myself then, then 10 years from then or 20 or 30 or 40 years from then, I would probably be too sick to be taken care of. And I didn't want to go down that path because I love life too much. And so I just started reading. I just started educating. I literally tried everything I possibly could. I tried every single diet I possibly could. I started reading hundreds of nutrition books. I went to all these seminars, all these conferences. 
And I started coming across certain people who were just talking about medicinal mushrooms or wild plants like nettles. And at first I would order these things online. I mean, I would spend a lot of money thinking that that's the way to do it. I had no idea that these things were growing right around where I lived. I had no idea that the reishi mushroom or chaga fungus literally grew within an hour or two of where I lived. I had no idea that nettles were literally growing right down the street from me. And so it just blew my mind. And I'm just so grateful that I came across that information. I don't know if it's fate or what it was, but I feel like I owe it to whoever gave me that kind of mission in life to just give back by teaching as much as I possibly can and just sharing the passion that I have. Yeah, it's it's like receiving the gift turns you into a gift. I think that's a... <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I don't know if I'm a gift, but thanks for saying that. Well, you are. Clearly, you're, clearly you're giving away the, the discoveries that you've made. That's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't hold it within me. It would be like if somebody came up to me and said, don't breathe or don't blink. I would say I can't do that because it's unnatural. It's like it's not a part of my biology to do that. And so if somebody said, don't teach about nature, don't teach about the benefits of nature connection, I wouldn't be able to live. I just wouldn't be able to live. Like, I have to do this. And again, I don't know where it comes from, but uh, it's just something that's maybe flowing through me right now that just needs to come out. And maybe it'll all come out one day and I won't need to do it anymore and I'll pass on the torch. But I'm lucky that I have my health. I'm lucky that I have the support of people. Uh, I'm lucky that my finances are all right right now that I can do this kind of thing and I can travel around and just teach as much as I possibly can. Yeah, I, th I think it's tremendously important. I, I don't know that there's anything else that could be more important than to you know re reacquaint people with wild things where they are. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm increasingly convinced that the problem that we face globally is the fact that people are dislocated from in being present where they are in in every respect. I mean, it's just like to, to be constantly distracted and not able to be present with other people is an issue. But like I think to be constantly having no no reason or means to to just tune into your surroundings like biologically, um, that's pretty upsetting too. I mean, pe people are talking about nature deficit disorder now, aren't they? And, and if you think about it, it just stands to reason. When we, we used to constantly feel the wind in our hair, we used to constantly, you know, we'd, we'd be out in the rain. Nobody just wants to even go outside if it's raining. You just forget that our basic state of being would have been to be outside. These buildings that we're both sitting in currently, but like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> People would have just been in contact with plants, soil, wind, rocks, you know, to create these kind of artificial barriers that we've got now between us and the surroundings. And, and, and I, I just think so many things that, that we take for granted in everyday life are in fact artificial barriers that stop us from being actually a part of our, our surroundings. So anyway, I'm saying all that just to reinforce the point that it's really, really important what you're doing to, um, to uh, enable people to sort of strip back the layers and, and just essentially touch things, you know. If you, if you uh, whether you're touching things with your attention, just, just by noticing them, because now you know what species of flower that is, because someone's learned that from your videos or whatever. Or what I feel is even more important is that you touch things with your hands and, and, and actually start munching on them, and, and then they, they really become part of your life then, don't they? Like with, um, with, with like the, the habits and procedures that we do um, over and over again once you discover this species of mushroom or 
this ferry or whatever. It's real live contact, isn't it? You're helping people to touch things again. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know what I noticed over the years? I mean, I lead a lot of wild food walks and mushroom forays. And in many instances, at the end of the day, even though I talk about so much information because I'm somebody who likes to dive deeply into topics, one particular mushroom, I could spend three hours just learning everything I possibly can. And I have a tendency to talk probably too much about one thing, and we don't make it very far sometimes in the woods. But at the end of the day, I think people come up to me just saying, it was just so nice to just be outside with a great group of people. And so it really has nothing to do with the information that I tell. It has nothing to do with, did we find a lot of choice edible mushrooms? It's just being outside. And these walks just give permission to people. Yeah, just come outside for the day. It's going to be all right. I'll take you around. You'll feel the wind in your hair. You'll feel the sun on your face. You'll be with a great group of people. You might eat something that's wild. You might see some poisonous things. Heck, you might even touch some poisonous things. But at the end of the day, it's going to be all right. Uh, and that's a good feeling, leaving those events, knowing that people do feel that way. So what, what are some of, what are some of the, the most beneficial things that you've found in terms of medicinal plants, mushrooms, or, or nutrition? I mean, you um, you presumably introduced all kinds of these things into your, into your diet. I mean, what, what, are, what are some of the most powerful things that you personally eat as a result of your hard food journey? So interestingly, one of the most beneficial things that I discovered for myself related to the wild that I ingest on a daily basis is wild water. It's spring water. I've been going out to wild springs ever since I started getting back into nature 10 years ago. And I've made it a discipline. I don't miss a day drinking wild spring water from Pennsylvania. I think it's one of the easiest ways and one of the best ways to connect to your land is to connect to the water source. Of course, you've got to do your research and figure out where the clean springs are. I understand that not every spring is clean, but if you find a good source, I mean, what don't you have, you know? I mean, you've got water. They say you can go many days without food. You can't go that long without water. And I think that's one of the best ways to connect with your land because think how much of your body is water and think how much of it can be built out of the worst water possible. And where I live, the municipal tap water isn't that great. It's not good at all. Um, sure, it's better than in other areas of the world, but fortunately here in Pennsylvania, we've got a lot of water. It's just a water-rich state, so I'm fortunate to have access to all these springs. And that has just allowed me to make sure I get into nature on a frequent basis. Um, every three weeks, every four weeks, coming home with 20 gallons, 30 gallons of water. Every time I make tea, every time I make coffee, every time I take a sip of water. It's the spring water. And I just feel like I'm being built out of the elements that literally build Pennsylvania, where I live, by drinking this water. So I can't say enough good things about finding a local source of quality water. Because we tend to focus on the food part of it. We tend to focus on the medicine. But you literally are made of water. Like, we're walking columns of water. And the more that you can build yourself out of clean water, the better you're going to be. Um, so that's one thing that has just been tremendous in my healing journey over the years not only to feel better physically, but to feel more connected to land, is to find water. But as far as plants and mushrooms and trees and all those things, medicinal mushrooms for sure. I mean, that's one of the first things that got me back into the woods, besides the water was medicinal mushrooms. And I know there's a lot of people who don't like to talk about medicinal mushrooms. There's a lot of controversy surrounding medicinal mushrooms. Some people say it's bogus. Some people say it's junk science, there's no good re uh, research on it, that people are just trying to make money on it. But I would say 
literally dig into the research. There are plenty of double-blind, placebo-randomized controlled trials showing that certain species in certain instances can really support the immune system. And they have powerful anti-cancer activity, powerful antiviral activity. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to me saying that they've healed themselves of some, of some pretty serious conditions ingesting medicinal mushrooms. And I know it's anecdotal evidence, but I mean, you see them now compared to where they were and it's mind blowing. And if nothing else, what medicinal mushrooms did for me, they kept me tethered to the forest. Like I can't go more than three days without looking for medicinal mushrooms. I just want to know if they're there. You know, I just want to look on trees and just see if I can see some kind of polypore fungus that might hold medicinal value. And so that keeps me tethered to the forest. And ultimately it just led me to this mission of what I'm on right now. And isn't there medicine in that something that leads you to your mission? I mean, that's medicinal right there. Cause there's a lot of people who don't know what they want to do in life. A lot of people who are struggling, a lot of people who are lost. And I'm not saying that, a chaga fungus is going to do it for everybody or a reishi mushroom is going to do it, but it's done it for me. And I ingest these things almost on a daily basis. And also, I mean, when I take a supplement like a reishi mushroom in a bottle, to me, because I make these myself, it's not just ingesting that mushroom. It's ingesting, and I know this sounds kooky, but I'm going to say it anyway, it's ingesting the forest where it came from. So if I harvest a mushroom in a pristine area with all these beautiful hemlock trees, all these beautiful birch trees, all this great clean water, that mushroom is not just a reishi mushroom. It's made out of the elements that built that forest. They share nutrients amongst one another because when a tree dies, the reishi mushroom takes up some of those nutrients. The reishi mushroom dies. It gets recycled into the forest, turns back into other organisms, turns back into a mushroom, and so on, ad infinitum. You make a tincture out of that, you're essentially getting a piece of that forest. So I just look at these tinctures as a forest in a bottle because I live inside. I spend a lot of time inside. I don't spend as much time as I would like to outside. And so if I can just ingest a piece of the forest every single time I ingest a mushroom, more power to me. So that's what I see whenever I see medicinal mushrooms. It's not just a fungus. It's the whole package. So I want to ask you about one one mushroom in, in particular because I'm, I'm just starting my medicinal mushroom journey, I have to say. Um, and last year I harvested a lot of turkey tail, Adam. Um, but I've done nothing with it. I've just dried it and it's it's uh, still sitting in the drying room actually um, in, in boxes waiting for me to do the next thing. What would what would you suggest I do with my turkey tail? Are you a tea person or are you a tincture person? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I'm not a tincture person yet. So you dried it and that's important. That's the first thing I recommend whenever you bring a medicinal fungus home is to dry it. And the reason I recommend drying is you never know when you're, when you're going to get around to it. I mean, whenever you're foraging, and you know this, it's all fun until you have to come home and then process it and clean it and do something with it. Like, it's fun going out and collecting things. It's fun learning this stuff. And then you come home with, like, baskets and bags full of acorns. And it's like, okay, now the work really begins. But if you can dry something right away, in the case medicinal mushrooms, then you're buying yourself a lot of time. And so you're drying it right now, and that's important. It's also important because whenever you make a medicine out of it, you want to break it up. It's just like making coffee. Not too many people make coffee out of whole coffee beans. You grind it up. Or whenever you're using pepper, you grind up the pepper. Or salt, you grind it up and you do it fresh. But you want to store it whole because you'll preserve it much more uh, efficiently and effectively if it's stored whole. But whenever you use it, you want to grind it up. And it's easier to grind up mushrooms whenever they're dried. Look at something like a reishi mushroom. Um, 
you can't just put like a fresh reishi mushroom in a blender. It'll just like get beat up in there. But if it's dried, it'll become a nice powder. And you want to increase the surface area because if you're making a decoction like a tea or if you're making a decoction like um, – I'm sorry, if you're making an alcohol extraction, then if the surface area is increased, you're going to be able to pull out some more of those pharmacologically active compounds. And so if you want to make a decoction, it's easy. You're essentially just making a tea. You're going to put that thing in hot water one hour, two hours, three hours, maybe eight hours, and just let that simmer. And the ratio is up to you. I mean, I would add enough to get some color out of it. If you add way more, it's going to be much stronger. You might not like the taste. If you add less, it's going to be milder. But you can also just simply add those to soups. I mean, if you ever make slow-cooked meals or like crock-pot meals, you could just add fresh turkey tail in there and pull it out almost like a bay leaf. And it's not going to add too much flavor because turkey tail is rather mild. But you're going to get some of those water-soluble compounds by doing that. Um, I like making dual extractions with mushrooms because you're getting the water-soluble compounds and you're getting the non-polar compounds, which could be extracted in alcohol. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Um, And it's just easier to take. Like whenever you make teas and decoctions, you kind of have to sit around for a while, watch the stove. If you use a slow cooker, well, you don't really have to watch it. I mean, you can leave the house. But with a decoction, you got to do – I'm sorry, with the dual extraction, you've got to do a lot of work up front. But then once you set it, you can essentially forget it and then just come back to it six weeks later. So making a dual extraction, you start with the alcohol portion, which is essentially making a tea using vodka. You just put it in vodka. Of course, you want to grind it up. You want to crush it up. You want to get your ratios right. But then after about six weeks of doing that, you just strain it out, and you essentially have an alcohol extraction. Then what I like to do is take that material in there and then put that in a pot of water, make a hot water decoction out of that. After that, I let it cool down. Then I combine the two, and you have a dual extraction. Now, I know I rushed through all that, so I can actually email you with more directions, but it's a long process. I mean, I have a course, uh, a Foraging Wild Mushrooms course, and I spend maybe an hour or two talking about this process in depth. And I do entire classes on this. It's not something that I can probably tell you all the nuances of in just a three-minute soundbite. That's right. Um, but okay. that's just something to think yeah. about whenever you're getting started with it. I mean, the important thing is you get it in your body. It's yeah. one thing to have it like on the drying rack. But you want to get that into your body somehow. The thing is, if you just ingest it like that, dried, all you're going to be getting really is fiber, nutritionally speaking. It's just a lot of chitin, which is the fibrous substance that makes up the cell wall of fungi. So you really need to decoct it some way or put it in alcohol to get out those compounds. So once you've got that dual extraction thing, that's something that you would take every day, Adam, from from, um, turkey tail? Or would you take it once a week? What's what's your kind of approach to... um the mushroom extracts? So that's a good question. I mean, anytime somebody's making an extraction or making their own homemade medicines, it's important to know, like, what are you going to do with it? How often are you going to take it? Like, what strength should you make it? One reason I really enjoy medicinal mushrooms is because there are compounds found in mushrooms known as beta-glucans. These are polysaccharides that have been well-studied in some cases, not all, but in some cases to have immunomodulatory support. And immunomodulation is regulating the immune system in a dual directional way. So this could be stimulating the immune system, or this could be suppressing the immune system. And some people would say, like, why would you want to suppress the immune system? Like, if you're getting sick, don't you want to boost the immune system? Yeah, you want to boost the immune system if you're getting sick. And if you're immunocompromised, that might be a good thing to boost the immune system. But what if you have an autoimmune condition? 
What if your immune system's on overdrive? It's too high. It's too hot. You got to put a ceiling on that. And more specifically, you got to put a ceiling on the inflammation associated with an overactive immune system. And so these mushrooms have the ability and they've been shown routinely in multiple studies to have this ability to not only boost the immune system by supporting white blood cells, by supporting natural killer cells and increasing the numbers of these, but also having anti-inflammatory effects by reducing cytokine count and all these inflammatory molecules and essentially putting a lid on that. And so inflammation isn't rampant in a human organism. And so they have a dual directional ability. They have immunomodulatory ability. Not many plants, I know that there are exceptions, have this ability, or at least they haven't been studied for it. Whenever we get sick and we go the plant route, which I love doing, like I love using herbal medicine for plants as well. But you think of something like echinacea or elderberry or garlic or allium vegetables. These things stimulate your immune system. But what if your immune system's too high or too hot, you know, if you have an autoimmune condition? You can't take these things on a daily basis and keep ramping up that immune system because these things are very powerful. And in my experiences, they should be taken in acute settings, unless you have certain conditions in which they would be uh, called upon. But with mushrooms, they seem to be more gentle. They seem to be more gentle acting and slower acting. And I know this doesn't sound scientific, so just bear with me when I say this, but it's almost like you got to build momentum and you got to build this force field around you by taking these mushrooms. You just got to take it day after day after day, week after week, and slowly strengthen your immune system. Because you got to think, we've been wrecking our immune systems for quite some time. You're not going to be able to fix it in one day. You're not going to be able to fix it in a month. You're not going to be able to fix it in a year, probably. These are things that require a lot of time and a lot of patience, the mushrooms I'm talking about. And so I generally take them for preventative measures rather than I'm getting sick, I'm going to go take my reishi mushroom. I'm getting sick, I'm going to take my turkey tail mushroom. These are things that I would recommend, at least in my case, and to people who are interested, to adjust on a daily basis and give it some time because they're slower to act. But once you get the ball rolling on it, it's got a powerful effect overall. So I look at them more as preventives rather than I'm getting sick, I'm going to take something for it. Yes, you can increase the dosage whenever you're getting sick, and I tend to do that myself. Um, but more so, it's just taking it knowing that I'm strengthening my immune system just in case something's going to happen and something's going to try to compromise my immune system. I've been working on it for a long time with these mushrooms, so I will hope to be all right in those cases. But again, I'm not prescribing anything to anybody. I always encourage people to do more research on this stuff. but from my experience and from the experience of a lot of other people who have been using medicinal mushrooms, this is what I found to be true for myself and for some of those people as well. So what's your, what is your daily, um, if you don't mind talking about it, your, your daily regime with medicinal mushroom extracts or, or other plants, other things that you do just take every day? I mean, I ask because I've been thinking for, for a while about a number of things which would, would, as far as I can see, be beneficial to take on a daily basis. But at the same time, I, I, I don't want to envisage this kind of thing. It's almost like the, uh, the, the sort of wild version of some poor elderly person that's got 15 lots of tablets they have to take every day. <laughs> I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, maybe um, drinking less black tea and, and having a, two or three different wild things that, that are in a blend and, and having it every day and maybe a couple of med medicinal mushroom extracts. I mean, just to say, I think that hawthorn is possibly an exception to um, to what you say, and also um, meadowsweet. 
with regard to a, a daily regime with plants because Hawthorne has a very um, slow and gentle effect on the cardiac system. It doesn't have a kind of, you know, some of the aggressive actions that some plants have. So it, it is kind of recommended as something that you, you'd have on a regular basis in order to keep the cardiac system good. And also Metasweet has salicylic acid, which I know that a lot of uh, medical advice has come out saying people should take aspirin every day, but then that's been changed now because aspirin in itself is, is, is quite aggressive and can have negative effects. But, but of course, the plant extract of Metasweet doesn't have that downside. So the, 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 the conclusion I've come to with that, but I, but I haven't started doing it yet, I've, I've been sort of working up to developing a, a, a daily regime with some of these things. Um, is probably to have a Hawthorne and Meadowsweet blend um, that would be good for, for as a general tonic. But yeah, going back to the question, do you, do, do, so do you have that kind of regime yourself that you have a few different things that you always take every day or is it not quite so regimented as that? It used to be more regimented, I'll tell you that. I've loosened up over the years and learned to just trust my intuition. Mm -hmm. um, and regarding daily plant extracts, you're absolutely right. And there's another one that I know that grows around here, if anybody's listening in the northeast of the United States and probably elsewhere, because I don't believe this plant is actually native to the United States, but it's uh, self-heal, Prunella vulgaris or all-heal. That's a plant that's actually been shown to have immunomodulatory properties as well. And so I have an extract of that. And I love nibbling on that plant whenever I find it. And if you just look at people's coffee addictions and tea addictions, clearly people are medicating with plants on a daily basis. And so, I mean, I think it's important to just give your attention to different kingdoms of life, mushrooms included. So mushrooms, plants, even the bacteria with the fermented foods. Um, so it can all be it can all be incorporated into a well-balanced diet and lifestyle. As far as my personal intake of some of these medicines, like I said, it used to be way more regimented. Now I have them spread out in a cabinet and honestly I just open it up and whatever my hand grabs I ingest it. <laughs> I have lion's mane, I have reishi, I have turkey tail, I have chaga. I'm blessed because I have access to these where I live and these have been well studied. Some more so than others but whenever you look at the lion's mane mushroom I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one of the more well-known medicinal mushrooms in the medical literature with placebo randomized double-blind controlled trials um, turkey tail as well. Whenever you get into something like our reishi mushroom, which is Ganoderma suge, maybe not so many human design trials. Same thing with the chaga fungus, but still a lot of trials on those fungi utilizing cell cultures and uh, animal studies and test tubes. Not like I condone any of that stuff, but that's just where we're at with the literature on that stuff. But honestly, it's whatever my hand grabs, which also helps me to cycle through these things rather than just relying on one thing every single day, years at a time. I think it's important to give your body a break with anything in life, just to take a step back from it, even for just a short period of time, and then go for something else. But I've gone months at a time just consuming one thing before, um, maybe even longer than that. But it's usually the medicinal fungi that are the most well-studied, which would be, and I know I just said this, but turkey tail, reishi, uh, chaga, lion's mane. I'd like to start ingesting more cordyceps mushrooms. And honestly, if you're looking for a substitute for black tea and you want something from the fungal kingdom, I would look into the cordyceps fungus for that. Unfortunately, where I live, they're not very big organisms and they're not rare, but you just don't find a ton of them like you would find a maitake mushroom or a chaga fungus. Mm. And so it's difficult for me to make a lot of extractions out of that. But that's one I would certainly add to the list if I had more access to it.
you've talked a lot about the um the effects on the on the beneficial effects on the immune system with these fungus but but there's there's a lot of stuff about um brain functioning as as, as well isn't it would you like to say a bit about that yeah i mean Whenever we look at lion's mane, for example, I mean, that's probably the most well-known fungus that's categorized as a medicinal fungus. Of course, if you get into psilocybe mushrooms or the ones that contain psilocybin and psilocin, then you're really talking about the brain. You're really talking about people's mental states. But as far as ones that don't have that activity, lion's mane would probably be the one that doesn't have any taboos associated with it. But yeah, there's many good studies on this. Yes, there are studies in rats and mice and test tubes, but there are a few studies in human beings showing that it can help to uh, protect cognitive function and may stave off symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia because they have these nerve growth factor enhancing compounds. Uh, these are big words, but I'll say them anyway. Heracinones and aranacines. And it's interesting because in some cases, it's actually more commonly found in the mycelium of the fungus, not necessarily in the fruiting bodies, uh, which is why sometimes when you purchase extracts, you might only see the mycelial extracts rather than fruiting body extracts, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, but I always encourage people to do research on the specific extracts just to make sure you're getting what you want to be getting out of it. But with lion's mane, if you just eat those mushrooms, I imagine you would be getting some of those effects. But personally, what I like to do is to delay gratification. <laughs> Whenever I find lion's mane or another member, and there's a genus, it's known as Hericium, H-E-R-I-C-I-U-M, all members of this genus are edible. And so they're great for beginning mushroom hunters because nothing looks like them. I mean, they look like downward pointing icicles or spines on trees. They always grow on trees. They're fleshy, they're soft, they're the size of softballs. They can grow much bigger than that. In some cases, they're very easy to cultivate as well. Um, but they also have the ability to work on the brain as well, the central nervous system. And so I tend to delay gratification by not necessarily eating them, but saving them and then drying them out and making extracts out of them uh, and typically dual extracts. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm particularly fond of lion's mane. It was, it was one of the um, most interesting discoveries we made when we just started to supply restaurants with, with wild foods about uh, 15 years ago. And we found this massive great lion's mane growing off a a fallen beech tree um and uh we had some chefs down from a very famous restaurant in london and, and and we 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 cooked it for them so they had just little pieces of lion's mane on their plate uh but we we used it as a kind of a can you guess what this food is situation and uh i can tell you none of them guessed what class of living thing it was they thought it might be a kind of it might be a vegetable, it might be some kind of seafood. No one guessed it was a fungus. So that was quite delightful. And then um, a little while after that, I met somebody from um, Scotland that was cultivating mushrooms and selling these kind of kits, and she had lion's mane. And I said, do you, do you, where, where's, what's the source of this lion's mane? She said, oh, it's, it's American. I said, well, w w wouldn't it be nice to have British lion's mane going out for people to cultivate instead of... Instead of uh, something from a from another continent she said well yes but i you know i don't i don't have a source for wild lion's mane i said well i do and i sent her up a piece of this lion's mane that we'd found and um 10 years later um i was having a similar conversation with a, with a friend of mine he's cultivating lion's mane and reishi and all sorts of stuff but but again he he has the other two 
the other two of, the, of that genus from the wild, but he didn't have lion's mane. I said, well, I think I can get it. Let me, um, let me get in touch with Anne. And Anne Miller, her name is, the, 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 the mushroom lady. And it was so funny because I called her up and she had no recollection of this at all. I said, Anne, are you still, are you still doing the, um, the lion's mane with the, the spawn that I sent you from Kent? Um, and um, she said, oh, sorry, I, I don't know what you meant. And so I, I went over it with her and said, no, it was at this time and, and I sent you the stuff and blah, blah, blah. She said, that's okay, I've got notes. So she went back through her notebooks for that period of time and found the notes and, and she said, you're absolutely right, she phoned me back. And then she sent me um, a package with, with the spawn, which has now gone to my friend in Essex. So just one mushroom that we harvested uh, in, in Kent 15 years ago has gone on to, wow. to, to all of these different mushroom kits going out all over the country. And now Matthew is growing, it's uh, Matthew Rooney, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, He's uh, done some very interesting stuff with reishi. Um, Matthew, Matthew is responsible. I don't know if you've seen this thing that people are doing with reishi. Um, now they're making a kind of leather out of it. I have seen that, yes. That was all because some, some people just came around and looked around Matthew's uh, setup in Essex, in England. And he just as a stray comment said, oh, you could probably produce a substitute for leather out of this stuff. He said, I've not explored it, but somebody should. Well, that person went then and, and, and got all this massive funding to, to, do, um, to do this amazing leather project. Wow. But um, anyway, yeah, so I, I, I do love that mushroom. Um, but I haven't got as far as, the again, with the dual extracts. I've got, I've got lots of powdered lion's mane, and I just make a tea out of it at the moment. Um, actually, I mix it with, um, with, uh, with, with uh, cocoa and... Um, rosemary so you can see i'm 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 going for that mental function thing there because because they all three um are supposed to you know stimulate the brain and stave against um you know memory loss but isn't isn't turkey tail also effective for for um boosting the memory yeah actually, i was just gonna say that there's some preliminary research that i think just came out maybe a couple years ago within the past five years that i'm aware of there might be some older studies but suggesting that turkey tail might have similar ability. And I believe it's action as it's an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, okay. which ultimately keeps acetylcholine in the brain longer, which is associated with um, enhanced memory and cognitive function. And I think that's its particular action. But I don't think there's any studies being conducted similar to the way studies are being conducted on lion's mane, meaning using human beings and uh, double-blind trials and placebo trials and all that kind of stuff. I think it's still in the in vitro stage, which is using cellular cultures. Doesn't mean it's junk science or anything like that. It's very promising, you know. It'd be it'd be interesting to see uh, where the research goes from here on that. But I wouldn't be surprised if more mushrooms are like that as well, because it's not like the brain is separate from the rest of your body. It's not like the central nervous system is separate from the rest of your body. It's like it's all intertwined. And so if you work on one thing in your body, there's a chance that there's going to be residual effects elsewhere. It's hard to just target one specific thing always, especially with something like the uh, fungal kingdom, because they seem to be generalists in many cases rather than extreme specialists, at least on their medicinal actions in the body. Yeah. I mean, we've, the point is we've co-evolved with all of these things, isn't it? And it's almost certain that in the past people – People were utilizing them much more than, than we are now. Yeah, I mean, another thing with that lion's mane is um, I read about one study where, where it was given to people suffering from um, early stages of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And they found that the, 
the symptoms of the people, I mean, they weren't dramatically cured or anything, but the, the symptoms definitely lessened as a result of a regular dose of, of lion's mane. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think in that study also, they did say that the effects lasted so long as they consumed lion's mane, meaning once they stopped taking it. And I could be wrong, it could have been a different study, um, but they did find out that whenever participants stopped taking it, that the effects seemed to go away. And they could be brought out again if people would go back on that uh, regimen of consuming lion's mane. And there is something else which I think is quite, quite sort of tentative at the moment. Where, whether it, whether it um, means so, it's about oyster mushrooms. Whether, whether it means that oyster mushrooms would actually be effective in in helping symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but certainly there's a there's a compound that's found in in large amounts in oyster mushrooms, and it's a compound which people with Parkinson's they they don't have it anymore. I'll perhaps put the uh, the study on the notes to the podcast so people can look at it. But it it it, it suggests a possibility that that um, oyster mushrooms might have a, a beneficial effect where um, where Parkinson's is concerned. But I, but I think you're right. We're probably just scratching the surface. Fifty years, a hundred years time, we, we will probably have um, insights into these mushrooms that mean everybody is going to be wanting to somehow have them in their lives and um, I, don't, I don't know if you think about this but because because we've been involved in gathering and harvesting stuff for commercial sale um i guess we've done this thought experiment a lot more you know like the 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 plants that that are available the mushrooms that are available um in the wilds really everybody should have access to them and let and yet you think about it and you think well crikey there's a lot of people how are we going to how are we going to find that that way and, and so for, for, for us it means that we're we're sort of contemplating um a kind of rewilded scenario you know that, that that how could we how could we see more land able to produce wild stuff basically you know you've got places like scotland where there's there's large areas that are just basically totally unproductive i don't know if you have places like that in the states but like there's all this more land in scotland well, that could be covered. Yeah, any any shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> There's an unproductive place right there, <laughs> even if it's in use. Yeah. There's a funny video actually by this guy, Mac, the English guy, Mac, Mac McCartney, and he he went to some. Uh, he was staying with some indigenous group, and they they kept him like under the ground in the dark for for three days doing this chanting thing. And says you've got to get ready for this special trip. We're going to take you to the land of the living dead, and um. And uh, they really did keep them down there in this place for three days. And after three days, they took them out, blindfolded in a Land Rover, took them on this journey, <laughs> led them out into this place, took the blindfold off. They were in a shopping mall. <laughs> <laughs> they took them to the land of the living dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't like to be in those kinds of places. I mean, I guess I'll go in when I have to, but there's too many of them out there. I don't think we need them. And uh, they're so devoid of any kind of complexity that nature has to offer. You know, all the right angles, all those bright colors, all those bright lights, but it's all like one dimensional. It's not, I don't know, it just doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like it's full of life at all. And then you see some of the people in there. Of course, I'm not gonna judge everybody, but you see some of the people who just spend a lot of time in there and you can just see they're just craving that wildness. Even if they don't know it, you can tell deep down that they would just love a, Good old-fashioned mushroom hunt. But I think I think it's or a dip in a cool stream. The problem is that people are hungry and they don't know that they're hungry, or they're yes. hungry and they don't know what they're hungry for. And I think half of the thing is like you, you're um, 
your thing. We're reaching into that cabinet for the for the for the um the thing that your body intuitively grabs first. You know, when you when you're taking your medicinal mushroom extract. Um, I think somehow we've got to get back to that. We we had a conversation with a guy Fred Provenza um, last year that's on the one of the podcast episodes, and his whole thing is about how grazing animals just know what to eat, but but he's basically saying, and so do we. We've just forgotten how to tap into that, but we absolutely your body does absolutely know what it needs. So um, yeah, I mean everything everything in nature knows what to eat. A yeah. squirrel doesn't need to be taught what its natural diet is. No. And, a bear and, doesn't need to be taught. Even a, a fungus. I mean, a fungus has to eat, right? Like, it's decomposing things. It's not going to some kind of class. It doesn't have, like, a guide taking it around, pointing out things. It's not confused. Yeah. And sometimes it's funny because humans use that kind of language. Like, if they see something eating something that it's not supposed to eat, and I'm putting supposed to in quotes, they think it's confused, you know? Like, sometimes a fungus will fruit on something that it normally doesn't fruit on, like the hemlock reishi mushroom occasionally will fruit on a birch tree. And people would say like, oh, it's confused or that shouldn't happen. It's like, it knows what it's doing, you know? Like it's looking for food and it's perfectly adapted to do such a thing. But human beings, for some reason, we just don't know. I don't know why that is. I think we've just forgotten over a long period of time. Um, and we're seeing the full manifestation and the effects of it today. I mean, every single diet book that's written it's crazy how many diets are out there. And I'll bet that the people who wrote those books, in the majority of cases, actually don't follow those diets. <laughs> or at least don't follow them for a long term, you know. Um, but we're starving for this kind of information. We're just starving for authenticity, I think, is what it really is. I mean, who we really are, why we're here, what our role is, and what we're supposed to be doing. And I think we'll discover it if we just tune things out. There's just way too much stimulation. Yeah. TV, internet, social media, advertisement. I mean, you look at the way news is presented today or any kind of TV show. It's literally every second and a half, there's just a new frame. There's like a new shot, you know, and you're constantly stimulated. But if you just shut all that out and you just get back to your real self, I'll bet the answers will come. It's just it's hard to do such a thing because the answers aren't immediate. They're not apparent. It's not just like written out like a how-to guide. It could take years of that, but you just got to trust in that kind of process. But slowly but surely, like your real self will come through and the answers will come through, including what you're supposed to be eating. I think it's it's about learning to listen, isn't it? And, you know, you certainly can't listen if, if someone's screaming in your ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that, that the whole thing you're describing there is like a constant, constant screaming in the ear. But I suppose, you know, we came up with this phrase a while back, like, everything is broken and, and nothing is broken. So, you know, out there, everything is broken because all of that stuff is going on and it's upsetting the ability that people still do have to absolutely know what they need and, and to get out there and find it. You know, that's, that's innate. You know, we are foragers. We are organisms. You know, organisms are really profoundly functional things that, that are able to get what they need. That's what organisms do. If you weren't able to do that, you wouldn't be an organism because you'd be dead. Um, but we've got all this artificial stuff that's, that's, that's apparently given us what we need, that's replaced the organic dimension of our life, where we can find stuff, obtain it, utilize it, metabolize it. So, for example, Fred Provenza makes a very important point. You know, you're saying about the squirrel knowing what to, what to eat. But, but Fred says, well, you know, when you ate your lunch earlier, how did you make the decision 
about which enzymes you were going to release into your stomach. <laughs> of course, the organism's doing it. So we've not managed to sabotage that part by subcontracting it to a to a to an industrial process or, or something like that. Um, but at, at the same time as as um, so basically everything's broken because everything's so something's getting in the way of that ability of our organism to connect and, and work really well with its surroundings. You know, like the walls that I referred to earlier. I mean, it's very difficult to relate when we're stuck behind a wall. But, you know, things in packets, things being processed, which, which are nothing like anything that exists in the wild. That's another barrier between us and, and our organic connection. So everything's broken, right? But, but, but then nothing is broken because actually we're still an organism. It's just, and there's organism out there, the whole organic complexity is out there. We just need to go and lie in a field for a while and, and just let the, you know, let the thing out there that joins us and the thing in, in us that joins that. There's this Japanese film, one of those sort of anime things. I wish I could remember the name of it, but, but it, 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 there's this creature that it comes up to you and these like weird little tentacles come out and, and just feels the face and feels it. And, and it's basically checking you out and going, okay, you're this, you're that. And, and um, you know, I think we have that, that capacity in us to, to check everything out. But somehow when we go to the forest, I think the forest kind of does that to us too and um, checks us out. But, um, and that's all still totally not broken. But for some reason, um, we're not putting ourselves in the context for it all to um, unfold, Adam. Yeah, I guess the work that you're doing and, and that we're trying to do is, is to, to just recreate that context somehow. That people can remember that they're an organism. Yeah, I mean, that's why I recommend the best thing you could do is just spend as much time as you can in nature. Like you might, you're not going to get it at first. You might not understand why you're doing this next year, even five years, but you have to just trust in the process. I don't like to prescribe anything to anybody, but I strongly believe in this concept of if you just spend time out there, even with no agenda, just do it. The effects are going to be so profound you're going to wonder how you ever lived without it. Things will start to make sense. But you can't go out there with any kind of agenda that it's got to happen on some kind of schedule where you're going to see the answer carved in some kind of rock or some kind of guide is going to come up to you or some kind of guru. Or you're going to eat some kind of mushroom and it's going to do this kind of thing for you. It's very slow. You have to be patient. But trust me, you wouldn't want to have it any other way. It took a long time for us to get to this state of dis-ease that we're in in a state of loss, in a state of struggle, and feeling like we don't belong, the reconnection process isn't going to happen overnight. You know what? It might not even be fully realized with you, but that's okay because if you can then teach that to the next generation, it might take four, five, six, seven, twenty generations for us to get back on track. And so don't be so selfish to think that it's going to start and end with you. Think about future generations as well. Uh, and think about your local community. Don't worry about what's going on on some other kind of continent. I understand it's important to not be so selfish just to think about yourself and what's going on right where you live. But if you can't take care of yourself, if you can't take care of a local park down the street from you that needs help. What makes you think you're going to save the rainforest? You know, it's like you have to have that kind of connection to your immediate landscape. There's been so much in the news over the past month about the rainforest burning. And it was nonstop for about two or three weeks, the coverage. And now it just stopped completely. And I imagine the fire subsided to some degree. But still, why aren't people talking about it? It's like it was just a news headline. People got all wrapped up in it. People were all jazzed, all excited. They wanted to help. 
they wanted to support. That's incredibly noble. But at the same time, don't forget that you have a park down the street that's probably going to turn into a housing development if you don't do something about it or if somebody doesn't do something about it. Or the amount of diversity as far as wildlife is involved is struggling right now because that water is polluted. But if you do something about it, you can increase the species diversity tenfold, 100-fold through your actions. Think of that as a mini rainforest that's burning. I mean, it's called your local park. It's called the patch of land behind your house. It starts there, and maybe it ends there as well. But like I said, it's not just about this generation. You got to think forward as well. well. I think that's a great way to end there, Alan. We've covered a lot of ground. It's been great to have you. Yeah, likewise. It was a pleasure talking with you. Keep up the good work yourself. Like I said, I've been I've listened to a few of your episodes even before I knew that you would ask me to be on it. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be up there with some of the greats and hopefully one day I will be considered maybe somewhere near their caliber as far as the quality that I bring to other people. You're doing a great job, man. I've watched a few of your videos. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, thanks. I'll keep doing them for you and for others. Well, thank you for joining us for this week's Worldwide Podcast. We hope you're enjoying all these episodes and so on. And as I've said the last few times, we'd be very pleased to hear from any of you just to let us know where you are and what you're getting from the podcast and even possibly suggestions for wonderful people you know that might want to be on the podcasts. Also, we have a Facebook page. I hesitate to even mention it because I kind of hate Facebook, but there we are. It's, um, it is a thing that if, 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 if you'd like to, um, post on there and, and interact with, with other people that listen. Yeah, I feel very ambivalent about that. <laughs> but who knows, you know, if you're going to be on Facebook, you might as well engage with worldwide people. So there it is. Go and check out the worldwide Facebook page if that's, if that's your kind of thing. So that's it for this week's podcast. 